Alright, this episode might sound a little different, and it's because I'm on the road. My Nana needed surgery, so I flew out here so I could be with her. So Nana, why don't you tackle the intro? Oh, <laughs> I've got to read that. Yeah, aloud. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Molly. And this is episode 141, King Aldfrith and St. Wilfred. Now, as you know, this show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the community and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Oliver, Christopher, and Mandy for contributing already. Alright, I don't think I need to tell you who the main characters are. You can just have a look at what the title of the episode is. So let's get right into it. And when we last left off, Bishop Wilfred was jilted out of the Archbishopric of Canterbury. And instead, Abbot Beertwald, the Abbot of Reculver, had become Archbishop Beertwald. So that did not sit entirely well with Wilfred. However, he just readjusted and made an attempt to reunify the Bishopric of York. With the idea, of course, of him heading it up. But King Aldfrith didn't agree. That would have given the bishop a hell of a lot of power. And presumably, Bishop Wilfred wouldn't let the matter drop. So Wilfred ended up getting banished out of Northumbria by King Aldfrith. And then, Wilfred fled to Mercia and became the bishop of the Middle Angles. And King Aldfrith reclaimed the lands at Ripon, which were once held by Wilfred. So that went quite possibly as badly as it could go for Wilfred. And basically, what we have here is a Northumbrian bishop who irritated King Oswiu by going against him at the Synod of Whitby, and then irritated his son, King Egfrith, by, among other things, contributing to the succession issues by supporting the queen's seclusion into a convent and, you know, preventing him from having an heir. And that ultimately ended up with him being banished. And now, he has irritated Oswiu's other son, King Aldfrith, and he has found himself banished yet again. At the age of 58, Wilfred has managed to irritate and survive multiple kings of Northumbria, become besties with the king of Mercia, and even find time to befriend a pagan warlord from Wessex and fight a bunch of pagans in Sussex after a shipwreck. So his life has been pretty interesting so far, but you wouldn't describe it as blessed. And don't forget that Wilfred had grown up in Oswiu's court, so he very well might have grown up with both Egfrith and Aldfrith. And I wonder whether his childhood connection to those three Northumbrian kings was a help or a hindrance. I mean, it's not like Oswiu was the best of family men. But at the same time, he did manage to make it through political messes that I wouldn't imagine many other men could survive. And spoiler alert, Wilfred would eventually be regarded as a saint. And sometimes I wonder if one of those miracles really should be his ability to keep his head attached to his shoulders despite all the things that he was doing. But regardless of the dangers involved, I do think that growing up in the Northumbrian court probably did benefit Wilfred to some degree. I mean, in many ways, he does appear to have been behaving in the model of Oswiu. It seems like he learned something there. For example, until Egfrith banished him, and his bishopric was split up into three parts, Wilfrid was marching around with an army, and one that rivaled a king's army. And in this era, that would have been quite a boon, not to mention wise, and an indication of how powerful he was. 
So anyway, that's roughly where we left off, with that rather formidable bishop getting exiled yet again. And to start our story, let's set the stage with the rest of the island. So in 693, King Bridey, who is also known sometimes as King Brood, the king of Pictland, had died. Now this was the same guy who defeated and killed King Egfrith at Necton's Mara, and who was largely responsible for pushing the English back down south and halting the advance of the Northumbrians. And he was probably a descendant of King Edwin of Deira, and I hope you remember Edwin. We spent quite a bit of time talking about him. He was the subject of quite possibly one of the greatest comeback stories of all time. Well, King Bridey was probably a descendant of him. And he looks like he shared a few traits that Edwin had. So this was a pretty tough loss for the Picts. But it was probably a bit of a relief for King Aldfrith and the Northumbrians. Meanwhile, things in the south were shaking up a little. We're told that in 694 in Essex, King Sabi abdicated in order to join a monastery. And this was actually a surprisingly common move at this point in history. And so his sons, Sigaherd and Swayfred, took the throne and jointly ruled over Essex. And that is not uncommon either, having joint kings. We've seen it a lot in Essex, we've also seen it quite a bit in Kent. And speaking of Kent, don't forget that the king of western Kent was one of King Sabi's sons as well. So for those of you keeping up, that means that we have three sons of King Sabi reigning as kings of Essex and Western Kent. So they might not get into a lot of fights, and we don't talk about them all that much in the narrative, but the East Saxon ruling class occasionally gives us hints of how great they were at dynastic politics. And based upon the fact that three of his sons were now kings, Sabi was a master. And then, a year after entering the monastery in 695, King Sabi of Essex died, and he was buried in Old St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And then sometime around then, or a little after, probably around 696-ish, King Aldfrith of Northumbria finally had a son, Osred. Yeah, we have an heir to the throne on the line of Oswiu. It was getting dodgy there for a bit, and we all know how fragile the line of Ida tends to be, so Northumbria was probably breathing a huge sigh of relief. Not only was the terrifying king of Pictland dead, but now they had an heir as well. Though interestingly, we don't know who the mother is. The thing is that King Aldfrith's wife, Cuthbert, sister of King Inna of Wessex, had retired to found a nunnery at Wimborne. However, we don't know exactly when she retired to the nunnery, so it is possible that it was her if she retired to Winborn later on. But if she cloistered herself before Osred was born, well, someone else must have carried the heir apparent. But who cares? We have an heir. But this nunnery thing does raise a question. What exactly was going on with the sons of Oswiu? I mean, that's two sons back-to-back back who had wives that would rather be in a convent than spend any more time with their husbands. It seems pretty clear that Oswiu wasn't winning Father of the Year, but I can't help but wonder if his kids were also kind of weird as a result. And given that one of his daughters had murdered her husband on Easter, remember that? Well, yeah, I'm guessing that the entire family was kind of creepy and didn't know how to behave in a relationship. So, yeah. At some point, poor Cuthbert said, Okay, that's it. I've had enough of this, 
and you, and I'm going to start a nunnery. And actually, Osred was not Aldfrith's only son. At some point later on, he had another son, though we know virtually nothing about that boy other than his name, and we definitely don't know who his mother was. But anyway, the point is that we now have an heir to Northumbria, Osred. And then in 697, so probably the following year, tragedy struck the House of Oswiu. Queen Osthrith, sister of King Aldfrith of Northumbria and wife of King Aethelred of Mercia, was murdered by the Mercian nobility. Yeah, the Mercian nobility killed the Queen of Mercia. That is, to say the least, rather shocking. And it's also kind of heartbreaking. This is Osthrith we're talking about. Not only was she the daughter of Oswiu, which would have been tough all on its own, but she also had multiple uncles and also her grandfather die due to interkingdom warfare. And one of her sisters went full-on creepy and killed her husband, the King of Mercia, on Easter Sunday. And then, one of Osthrith's brothers disappeared and was likely killed by her father, just like several of her other relatives and in-laws had been killed by probably Oswiu. So that's heavy enough right there. But life wasn't done messing with her yet, because she was soon shipped off to marry Aethelred of Mercia, despite the fact that her sister was, you know, known for murdering Aethelred's brother, which would have made things rather tense right from the start. Not to mention that her dad had killed her husband's dad. So yeah, that's a tough start for any marriage. And I can't help but wonder if she ever considered entering a nunnery. Especially when war between Northumbria and Mercia broke out, as it was wont to do. But she didn't, and she had to stay in Mercia while her husband fought her two brothers at the Battle of the Trent. And what do you even do in that circumstance? Who do you hope wins? It seems like no matter which way it went, Osthrith would end up mourning. And in the end, her husband was triumphant and one of her brothers was slain. And my guess is that she could not openly mourn in Mercia when that happened, given how relations were between the two kingdoms. And then her other brother died at Necton's Mera. And again, she probably had to keep her head down and hide her feelings. Honestly, compared to Queen Osthrith, Sansa Stark had it easy. And despite all of that, it seems like she was quite a competent queen, and in the tradition of Mercian queens, she also possessed a certain degree of power as well. For example, we see her confirming charters in Mercia, which makes me think that she and her husband must have gotten along or at least found some way to work together. So, that brings up the question of what happened in 697? Why was she murdered by the Mercian nobility? And what did King Aethelred think of that? Well, like with so many things in this era... The details were given are painfully sparse. But one theory put forth is that hostilities were starting to spark up between Northumbria and Mercia, and Queen Osthrith was killed as a result. And on the one hand, that does seem possible, considering that the tensions between the two kingdoms had now stretched generations, as well as the increased stresses placed upon them once Mercia sheltered and elevated Bishop Wilfred, who was totally hated in Northumbria. So yeah, the idea that the two kingdoms could start, you know, looking like they're about to fight is absolutely possible. But on the other hand, Queen Osthrith had survived other times when full-blown war had broken out between the two kingdoms. So why were they killing her now? 
Now, another theory is that this was payback for that awful Easter when Osthra's sister killed Aethelred's brother, King Peta of Southern Mercia. And that did certainly suck. And if that was recent, I would totally get that sort of payback. But it happened over 40 years ago. So if the Mercian nobility announced their grievance and then charged her with knives, I'm guessing that Osthrith's last words would have been, why you gotta bring up old shit? So I'm not buying it. And I think the only reason why this makes sense to anyone is because we tend to think of time passing really quickly in the past. But 40 years is a long time. It was a long time back then, it's a long time now. 40 years is 40 years. I mean, let's use a contemporary example of what we're talking about here. So here in America, there are still some people who, usually after a few drinks, will complain about President Carter. But those complaints are usually met with eye rolls from everyone else because people have moved on. And even in that circumstance, I really doubt that even the craziest person would go and attack President Carter's brother because they couldn't get gas that one summer. It just doesn't make any sense. And sure, while we are talking about murder rather than an oil crisis, it still doesn't really work out well. I mean, I get clannishness, but are we really going to say that these nobles were sitting on their hands and just letting their hate simmer throughout war and conflict with Northumbria, only to let it explode into action 40 years later by murdering an old lady who had nothing to do with what they were mad about? I just don't see it. Unless there was some sort of collective madness going on, I just don't think that was the reason. It could have been old-fashioned racism. I mean, that is definitely a possibility. And they might have used the murder as an excuse to justify their racism. But to actually go and say we're seeking vengeance specifically for something that happened 40 years ago? Yeah, I just do not buy it. There is another theory, though. As you might remember from one of the earlier episodes, Mercia had recently annexed the Hoissa. And it's been suggested that the queen and some of her kinsmen might have been trying to break that kingdom off from mercy and control. And that does seem possible. She was growing in power, and Mercia was certainly gaining significantly in power, so the kingdom would have been a serious challenge to her childhood home of Northumbria. So it seems possible that she might have wanted to prevent Mercia from forming another southern hegemony that could result in the death of yet another one of her brothers. And that certainly would be seen as treason within Mercia, and it could explain why the Mercian nobility killed her, and also why King Aethelred appears to have allowed it. But we'll probably never know. Those are some of the competing theories, though. And after the murder, the queen was buried at Bardney in Lindsay the same monastery where she had such a close relationship with the monks, and where her uncle, King Oswald of Northumbria, was interred and revered in a dynastic cult. Meanwhile, up north, it looks like things were briefly getting a bit punchy again between King Aldfrith of Northumbria and the new King of the Picts. I say that because both Bede and the Irish Annals record that in 697 or 698, there is a battle between the two kingdoms. Though, that's all we know about it, and interestingly, it was the only Northumbrian battle recorded in the reign of Aldfrith. So do you see what I mean about this enormous shift in culture that happened in the north? Aldfrith was just not a warlike king. It appears he was much more interested in scholarly matters. So, obviously, I'm kind of on Team Aldfrith here, but not everyone was happy about King Aldfrith. 
and we're told that sometime around 700, Bishop Wilfrid went and tattled to Pope Sergius I and complained that he had been unfairly kicked out of the bishopric of York and that he had his properties nicked. And the Pope probably realized that this was a bit beneath him and that he didn't really need to get involved in an internal conflict in Britannia. And so the Pope simply referred the matter back to the Archbishopric of Canterbury. And with that, the scene was set for a major ecclesiastical showdown in England. And it was kicked off in 702 or 703 at the Council of Osterfield in Northumbria. And it was presided over by Beartwald, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, there's only one account of what occurred at this council, but it's clear from the record that Wilfred was bitterly resented and that a significant part of the council wanted to crush this ambitious bishop. And why not? He was basically asking to be put in charge of the See of York and undo the organization that the previous archbishop, Theodore, had put in place which would have meant combining the new sees back into one mega-see, as it had been when Wilfred was the Bishop of York. And that would have had the effect of unseating every bishop in the north. So this wasn't exactly a request that was going to make him many friends. And whether or not he had a point only would matter so much when the stakes were that high. So predictably, as soon as the matter was brought up, an angry debate broke out. And in response, Wilfred went the full Wilfred. He basically argued that he was too amazing to be refused, and that he deserved this. In support of his position, he claimed credit for essentially everything that came out of the Synod of Whitby. The abandonment of the Irish state of Easter, the shape of the tonsure, even establishing the rule of St. Benedict and the introduction of a new method of chanting in accordance with Rome was brought to bear. In essence, he was beating his chest about his achievements and insisting that they should all just trust his judgment. But the council had enough of his judgment, not to mention his ambition, and it was decided that Wilfred should leave his office and abandon all of his properties in Northumbria and Mercia. The council then added a bitter pill to the end of it. Wilfred could keep Ripon, but only if he would retire from his office and confine himself to the monastery that was located there. Basically, you can lose everything, or you can keep one monastery, but it will be a form of house arrest. It's your call. The council was clearly out for blood with this. And it won't come as a surprise that Wilfred did not agree with their decision. And he all but told them where they could shove it. And then, according to Stephen of Ripon, King Aldfrith offered to use his army to pressure Wilfred into accepting the decision. But the bishops reminded him that he had previously promised Wilfred's safe conduct. So the king stood down. Now consider that. You'll remember from the cultural episodes how important hospitality was to the Anglo-Saxons. But here we have a king willing to violate it in order to finally put the Wilfred matter to rest. King Aldfrith really did not like Wilfred, and it looks like he didn't have any other friends in Northumbria either. So naturally, Wilfred legged it back to Mercia. And while Wilfred was a thorn in his side, it looks like Aldfrith was not willing to risk war with Mercia over just some pesky bishop. 
But despite having what looks like a narrow escape from the north, Wilfred was not abandoning his fight. So after entrusting his interests to King Aethelred of Mercia, he went back to Rome to complain yet again to the Pope. What the hell is with this guy? And how exactly does he think this is going to end? I mean, going and running to Rome to tattle on the leadership in the north isn't exactly going to make him popular up there. And even if he's successful, how happy or safe for that matter does he think he's going to be when he starts tending to the Christians in York? Seriously, it isn't like he was winning many friends up there. And in case he missed that point and he thought that he was popular in Northumbria, his opponents in the north excommunicated him, as well as his followers. But that wasn't going to deter Wilfred. So, off he goes to Rome. And so do messengers from the clergy in England, who carried with them accusations and complaints regarding this cantankerous old man who wouldn't listen to any of his superiors in Britain. And in early 704, Wilfred made his case in Rome. And what a case it must have been, because it took place over the course of four months. Four months. Now, Pope John VI was heading up the church at this point. And this is a period in history where popes typically only lasted around a year or two. So if you don't know who he was, it's okay. But basically, the argument made by Wilfred was that he wanted the pope to overturn the decision at the council and grant him the See of York. The full, unified sea. Or at the very least, give him Ripon and Hexham back. And the Pope sided with him on that last point. He should get Ripon and Hexham back. However, there still was the issue of Wilfred refusing to obey the Archbishop and his subsequent excommunication. And that was a bit of a tougher nut to crack. The trouble was that Rome wasn't entirely sure what happened in Osterfield. It was a bit of a he-said-they-said situation. So Rome stalled out, and it started to look a bit bad for Wilfred. And then his supporters tried to bolster his position with a pretty irrelevant statement about that one time 20 years ago when he sided with Rome against the Monothelites. Which is a bit like bringing up your ability to bake a killer pumpkin pie during an argument over whose turn it is to take out the garbage. Your pie skills might be amazing, but who cares? One thing has nothing to do with the other, and the garbage is still sitting right here. And actually, this sort of irrelevancy is a basic principle of legal arguments, or rather, what a failed legal argument looks like. But apparently the Pope and his advisors didn't go to law school, so it gave them pause. But not enough for them to fully come down on Wilfred's side. Instead, it was declared that a decision couldn't be made until they saw Wilfred's accusers in person, and that a synod should be held in England to handle the matter, and that the kings of Northumbria and Mercia should keep the Pope's decrees in mind. It was a non-answer, and one that would have made Wilfred quite happy. The Pope said he could get some of his lands back, and he wouldn't have to retire to a monastery and the Pope refused to comment on whether or not he was a stubborn old man who refused to listen to his superiors, which was the gist of the complaints leveled against him. So, with a smile on his face, or maybe just a little less of a frown, Wilfred started to make his way back home. But don't forget that Wilfred has been in our story for a very long time. 
so he was old. In fact, he was in his 70s. And that journey wasn't exactly an easy one. So on the way back, he had a seizure. He survived, but he clearly was not healthy. And then, upon returning to England, he presented the letters from the Pope and demanded to be restored. And King Aldfrith refused. Again, this sounds like Egfrith, doesn't it? Both he and his brother got letters from the Pope and basically said, <laughs> No, no, we're not doing that. So what exactly was it about Wilfred that inspired such strong reactions from the line of Ida? It's a strange thing, isn't it? Anyway, in that same year, 704, Aldfrith's health was failing, which was a serious problem because his son, Osred, was still a child, and he also might have been illegitimate. And there were open rivals to the throne who, you know, weren't kids. So what do you do in that circumstance? How could Aldfrith bolster his son's claim to the throne? Well, according to Abbas Aelflaed, Aldfrith's dying wish was that his successor be reconciled with Wilfred. Now, on first blush, that seems crazy and possibly a lie from maybe one of Wilfred's friends, given how much King Aldfrith absolutely hated Wilfred. However, given how precarious Osred's claim to the throne of Northumbria was, based on his age and possible birth status, this might have made good political sense. I mean, we're talking about an incredibly tenacious bishop. It's hard to imagine anybody being more driven than Wilfred. And with Wilfred on Osred's side, he might be able to navigate the potentially deadly waters of Northumbrian politics. So overall, it might not have been a bad choice. And then, on the 14th of December, 704 or 705, Aldfrith died in East Riding, Yorkshire, after about 19 or 20 years of rule. But Osred didn't take the throne. Aidwulf who was from an unknown line, wore the crown. And we'll see how that shakes out next week. All right, Nana, can you take us out? If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach us at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also join the community at the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening. That was perfect. <laughs> Fun, right? Yes. All right, it's time for the pub quiz. You know the drill. Question one How did King Oswiu of Northumbria die? Question two When King Egfrith of Northumbria's wife, Queen Aethelthrith, entered a nunnery and refused to come out so he could have sex? How did King Egfrith respond? Question three. True or false? When the Northumbrians and Picts fought in 671, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle ignored it and focused instead on the fact that a bunch of birds died. Question four. This bishop once raised his own army. He fought to the death with some pagans after a shipwreck, he tattled to the Pope about King Egfrith, and he was even imprisoned and exiled by that same king. Name that bishop. Question 5. King Egfrith and pretty much the entire army of Northumbria 
was killed by who? Question six. Bede wrote about how a group of people didn't know the Lord's Prayer, and they didn't know the Apostles' Creed. Who were those people? Question seven. True or false? Two centuries after St. Augustine's conversion, Anglo-Saxon women were still putting their feverish daughters into ovens and onto hot rooftops in an effort to cure them of those fevers. Question 8. The homes of the monks at Hartlepool were lavishly built despite their small size, with beautiful decorations and fine plaster interiors. But it's the exterior that's the most interesting since it gives us a sense that they are trying to keep up with the Joneses of the secular world. What were they doing to the outside of their homes? Question 9. King Cadwalla of Wessex was a classic southern warlord. He had killed multiple kings, driven out others, and he had killed large numbers of civilians. He was also friends with Bishop Wilfred. And why is that friendship surprising? Question 10. The warlike history of Northumbria shifted and became far more scholarly when this man took the throne. He was the illegitimate son of Oswiu and an Irish princess. To the Irish, he was known as Fland. Name that king. Okay, let's go through the answers. Question 1. How did King Oswiu of Northumbria die? He died of old age. Question 2. When King Egfrith of Northumbria's wife, Queen Aethelthrith, entered a nunnery and refused to come out so he could have sex, how did King Egfrith respond? He stormed the nunnery with his royal guard, and his wife fled out the back door. Question 3. True or false? When the Northumbrians and Picts fought in 671, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle ignored it and focused instead on the fact that a bunch of birds died. True. Question 4. This bishop once raised his own army. He fought to the death with some pagans after a shipwreck, he tattled to the Pope about King Egfrith, and he was even imprisoned and exiled by that same king. Name that bishop. Bishop Wilfred. Question 5. King Egfrith and pretty much the entire army of Northumbria was killed by... who? King Bridie and the Picts. Question 6. Bede wrote about how a group of people didn't know the Lord's Prayer, and they didn't know the Apostles' Creed. Who were those people? They were the uneducated English clergy. Question 7. True or false? Two centuries after St. Augustine's conversion, Anglo-Saxon women were still putting their feverish daughters into ovens and onto hot rooftops in an effort to cure them of those fevers. True. Question 8. The homes of the monks at Hartlepool were lavishly built despite their small size, with beautiful decorations and fine plaster interiors. But it's the exterior that's the most interesting, since it gives us a sense that they are trying to keep up with the Joneses of the secular world. What were they doing to the outside of their homes? They were sculpting plaster on the outside to make them look like they were built out of stone, just like their wealthy secular neighbors. Question 9. King Cadwalla of Wessex was a classic southern warlord. 
He killed multiple kings, driven out others, and he killed large numbers of civilians. He was also friends with Bishop Wilfred. And why is that friendship surprising? Cadwalla was a pagan. Question 10. The warlike history of Northumbria shifted and became far more scholarly when this man took the throne. He was the illegitimate son of Oswiu and an Irish princess. To the Irish, he was known as Fland. Name that king. Aldfrith, son of Oswiu. All right, I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next one.